0: On to today's show. (music) Welcome to part two of my conversation with Ralph Shami. When did you set
1: your sights on the African elephant? So the question for me was, um, what else is out there that we don't know about? You see, once you start down that road, Uh, You 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 realize that there's much more. I mean, one thing you you I learned from studying the blue whale because I did it for the next three years, uh, spending a lot of time on the open seas with the whales. You realize that there's this mystery that you've just barely you know scratched the the, the, you know the, the top the tip of it just barely. And I was wondering, in in my head, uh, we know it from mathematics and all this—the the idea of continuity—that this is not just the whale. It must be, you know, our colleagues in in this world, uh, in in that work on environmental economics, they call it the biodiversity, the ecosystem services, because the whale interacts with the krill and the, with the phyto, and and when you see, by the way, a great whale feeding it's not just the great whale feeding you see the dolphins next to it feeding you see the cranes diving you see the birds i mean there's a whole ecosystem around you so i i knew that just logically there wasn't just the whale that was capturing carbon maybe every just like us we have carbon a lot of other organisms out there and and through my own reading people kept started sending me stuff. For example, people were telling me, how about mangrove, seagrass, salt marsh? So before we arrived at the elephants, uh, I had met a very nice gentleman who works in the uh, um, Environment Agency, UK Environment Agency, Roger Proudfoot. He's a scientist. And he was telling me about salt marshes of England. And he explained to me there's only 10% left of the salt marshes of England. But the salt marshes also capture five tons of carbon dioxide per hectare per year. So he asked me whether I could help him value the salt marshes of England with the with the aim of protecting them. And that was the interim exercise between the, the whales and the elephants. Uh, and in fact, I went to England in, uh, I think, July 16. I gave a talk at the, the big conference they had on estuaries about the whales and I learned and then I was then started to work on valuing the salt marshes of England. Uh, And uh, so the salt marshes of England, there's 10% left. They capture five tons of carbon dioxide per hectare per year. Uh, They live, when they're healthy, they live forever, they're 500 years plus. And they're also great natural barrier against floods so I worked with uh, again my colleagues and from um, Roger Proudfoot's side with the senior scientist Michael Best, and we we got data on uh, on on uh, seawalls and uh, because when they don't have salt marshes they have to build seawalls so you can, you can calculate the opportunity cost of that, and we came up with a value for the ten percent that is left about I think four point two billion dollars. Can you imagine? Wow. Just in just in carbon sequestration and in flood control. So that was an eye-opener because we didn't even use data. They had data on tourism and data on fisheries. We didn't even use those. We just used the data we were kind of more sure of. And that's just for England, not for all of the UK. Of course, when you build a model like that, you could also calculate what if. You can ask the question, what if we were to regain the other 90% that we have lost? Mm-hmm. And you'd be amazed that the 90% uh, that, we, uh, that UK has lost would have been enough probably to offset all of the carbon dioxide emission of the United Kingdom. So, because you know how much you're emitting a year and you know how much you're absorbing per year. You see, whales, for example, directly or indirectly, when you add it up together, one whale is equivalent to thousands of trees in terms of carbon, se- carbon dioxide capture and sequestration. Uh, the uh, the phytoplankton, I think we put it in the paper, on a yearly basis captures about 37 gigatons of carbon dioxide. That's about four Amazon forests per year. So the the uh, you know we, we tend to forget how important the ocean is to us. Although it's somehow in our memories, we probably remember that the ocean is four-fifths of the planet, and we we are only on a sliver of the one-fifth of the planet. And uh, yet we're enamored with planting trees and without paying attention to the oceans and so forth. Anyway, you asked me about the elephants. So so in between, we did the work on the salt marshes. And I started, you know, you do the salt marshes, then people tell you why not the mangroves and you realize that the mangroves capture even more, seagrass, uh, coral reefs. And so I was getting requests left and right from all kinds of scientists and outfits trying to saying, can you help us value? Because we need to save what's left. And of course, remember, this is all individual work. This is late at night. I mean, Raja, I can tell you this. I haven't taken a vacation in four years. I have worked seven days a week, literally nonstop. My family thinks I'm completely berserk, (laughs) bonkers. Because it became an obsession, you know? You couldn't say no, because you realize climate calamities upon us and if we lose the fight with the on the climate there's no use doing anything else so i figured you know my job is to bring awareness that do you know do you know and not remember i am talking to a crowd that has never been part of this conversation so i'm not necessarily talking to the conservation people right they're already converts mm-hmm. i'm talking to the people who i call them the what's in it for me crowd why should I care? And I, my aim was to say, even if you don't care for the animals themselves, uh, do you care for yourself? They're looking after you. They're providing services that are valuable to humanity. And therefore, that's why you should care. I was not appealing to an ethical argument because my son is you know, is an ethicist. So every day he would come in. We had fights in the house because he, at one point he almost deleted my whole document. He said, you have no right to value life. Who are you? And I kept assuring him that I wasn't valuing life. I was valuing services that are being provided by a creature who has been treated so badly. I said, it's, all, it's worse than a slave, because a slave you still have to feed, right? Um, it's worse than a slave, what we've done to our fellow creatures. We've, we've taken them for granted. We've taken everything they've given us, and in return, we've killed them with impunity. And this game has an end, and the end is going to be very ugly for our species. Finally, so, I was able to convince him. So, how do the
0: ele- how do the elephants compare to the whales?
1: Okay, so so Fabio calls me up and says, "Listen, I did this study, and it's been covered by the New York Times and so forth. I'm going to send it to you." I said, "You don't have to. I've read it because I had read it in the New York Times that this this gentleman, the scientist, with a bunch of other scientists have." uncovered that elephants, these are African uh, forest elephants, not the savanna ones, uh, and uh, through their movement in the forest and the way they move and the way they eat, they forage, they, they provide more space for older trees, more space in terms of more, more soil and more sunlight and uh, more food, so that the older trees grow bigger, thicker, taller, and with deep roots. And they estimated that the movement of the of the elephants increased increased uh, the carbon sequestration by trees by six to um, seven so percent. That's published in peer reviewed journals. I mean, it's well 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 known, well understood. But it's only recent, two thousand nineteen. So he said, "Can you help me value the the elephant?" And keep in mind, Rajat, you could do this for a lot of creatures, but. The elephant and the whale are are considered keystone species. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, if they die, the whole ecosystem with it dies, you see? Correct. So I needed to choose where do I put my efforts because this is an individual effort. So I said, oh, yeah, we'll work. So so Tom Connell and I worked with, very closely with Fabio and we went through his model. Uh, the paper is published. It's, uh, it's freely downloadable from SSRN. Um And in it you see all the mathematics in the appendix, the derivations and all of that stuff, and we uh, looked at the uh, forest elephant and uh, we valued a forest elephant over its lifetime at one point seven five million dollars, just in carbon sequestration. imagine
0: so very close to the whale
1: yes, very close to the whale, yeah so um that 's just the that 's just through the Work, the impact of the if freely roaming elephant, because please, under, it was one thing I always underscore when I discuss this. And what I'm talking about is that value only accrues to us if the elephant is left alone to thrive freely in its environment. That's how you get because to get that value, what that that value assumes that an elephant lives, let's say, 60 years, and gives birth at some point if the elephant is a female, if she's adult, she gives birth, their survival rate, death rate, all that stuff you have to calculate. And and then there's next generation. So we go out 150 years. And we use a logistic model, which means it tapers off because it doesn't keep growing. And you then you discount all that work to the present. And what you get is a minimum of 1.75 million dollars uh, for the elephants. And uh, when I was working on that, uh, at four o'clock, I remember when, when uh, I don't sleep well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sleep at all, actually. Um, and um, I remember I had an epiphany. I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So, so you know, I was trained in neoclassical economics. And uh, one thing, we, I, I, I was trained in it and I taught I taught students for 9 years I practiced it in our paradigm we say there is no free disposal meaning if something has value its price cannot be zero correct but how then how do you explain the value of a whale is 2 million but its price is zero the elephant a- has a value of 1.75 million but its price of a living elephant of a living elephant is zero but a dead elephant fetches $40,000 for his tusks. So I, I remember like, like I was sitting in bed like, wait a minute, something just, something doesn't add up in the paradigm. So I went back to my arrow de Bru world where you learn all of your mathematics and all that stuff. And lo and behold, it's not there. I'm like, wait a minute. So I called my old professor. <laughs> I was very nervous. Because I thought he, if I, you know, if I sound stupid, they may rescind really my PhD. <laughs> and and uh, the famous Ali Khan at uh, Johns Hopkins, mathematical, very famous mathematical economist. And I said, Ali, can I come and see you? I, I need to ask you a question. So we went from one thirty to eight thirty at night. We met at a friend's house, and we, and I posed the question. I said, "Am I right, or am I missing something?" He said, "No, you're right." what you have here is a missing market. It's not an externality. What has happened is we have assumed free disposal, meaning you, something has value, but we've priced it at zero,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which means the paradigm is is, is a mistake. <laughs> There's a gap. So so that, you know, I didn't tell them, um, actually, you're the first, I think I haven't said that in any, I may have hinted it in one other interview, but you'd be the first where I actually say it this way. Uh, And so uh, I know that uh, Ali and colleagues are working on this. The mathematical economists are actually working on the implications of that for the economic paradigm. Um, But it's a horrible mistake. Because, at a very basic level, when you assume something has a price of zero or it's infinitely supplied, you basically abuse it. And that's what we've done with nature. We assumed that it's always there and it's free. And that assumption can be traced back to, if you like, to uh, Bacon, Francis Bacon, and others who uh, believed that. Um, humans were endowed you know were the, supposed to be the masters of the of uh, of nature and the beast and that uh, nature was always there for us so we we basically uh, went on on this uh, rampage of nature and that's why we are where we are so um and and in fact in our training i find the, the mistake was Imagine yourself, um, you know, you're presumably talking to me from your house. I'm talking to you right now from my home. Uh, I have a roof over my head. So my home provides me a roof from the rain and walls from the wind and so forth. But if I don't take care of it, pretty soon I'll have leaks all over the place, correct? Correct. Well, that's the natural world in which we live, you see? but we never paid attention to it we never so if you don't take care of the place in which you live it cannot protect you cannot look after you anymore and i mean yeah
0: i mean just from a philosophical standpoint it's just such a there's so much gravity in what you're saying i mean it really makes one just sit down and really like do the mental gymnastics of thinking through this entire problem and why we're at where we're at trust today trust
1: me it's I've spent, what I'm telling you is an agonizing two years (laughs) of long walks (laughs) and keeping it to myself. uh, Very few people I discuss this with. This is the first time I go public with it actually like this. This is a fundamental mistake. We made a fundamental mistake. Um, You cannot, we treated, I mean, anybody who's taken economics, we all know about externality, theory of externality. But nature is not external to you. It's the house in which you live. How can it be external to you? But that's the way we've treated it theoretically and in our work. So it's not an externality. What you have is a missing market. That's the proper way of putting it. Okay, And I've known this now for two years. Um, and I've been working on it quietly because that gave Took me in a different direction. So it's not longer, you know, it's not about only valuing nature. It's what are you going to do with it? What are you you going to do with this valuation? For what purpose are you valuing? Just to wow you? No, not at all. It's to say that nature alive and well, thriving nature, is so much more valuable to us and it's a newfound wealth, you see, because it's a missing market. So you didn't have it in your calculus. Mm-hmm. in your program it didn't exist so it was there it was providing you were only seeing one side of it the supply side they were supplying you things you thought it was infinite you always you know you know but you didn't realize the complementarity that that it also uh, it demanded of you to recognize that you need nature in order for you to survive so there's no substitutability there. It's a complementarity. I mean, it's, if you're an economist, we call it the leontief production you know, technology. You need nature. You need the whale. You need the elephants. You need the trees. You, you, you need them. But, so if you need them, that's your demand. And their supply is not infinite. Therefore, that means they intersect at some point. That means there's a price. The price by fiat has been zero. We just decided that the price is zero. And it unfortunately, uh, it, it, it exists. I mean, I can tell you where the, I think the mistake to my mind started with the Cartesian paradigm, with the idea, you know, I, I think therefore I exist, if you, the caricature of it, of the Descartes, you know, the, mm-hmm. and, and this idea that divorced, what it did, it divorced the mind from the corporal body. It divorced the humans from their natural world. And then you have writers around the time of Descartes, uh, Francis Bacon and others, given the supremacy to the human being. Of course, it provided for the, for the Industrial Revolution, but it, it created a very much a human-centric view of the world. And nature was not there in the discussion. Nature was there to be polluted, to be abused with impunity, right? to kill the tigers for the, for the joy of just shooting a tiger from a mile away, right? Shooting an elephant standing on its corpse and, and holding a gun and feeling very proud of yourself. So this is the view of nature, abuse and use. Whereas the correct view, once you bring in the value of a living nature into the calculus, all of this disappears and you realize that you need to live in balance with nature. That you, you give and you take, but you have to give. You can't just keep taking. I mean, there are many ways of understanding this, many ways. I can, do it, I can do it for you mathematically. I can do it for you philosophically. I'm not a philosopher, but as much as I understand. Morally, there's many angles at this, but it all boils down to the same thing. Nature is very valuable to us. My colleagues like to call it biodiversity, ecosystem services, whatever have you. And that value has never been captured. That's why, for me, conservation is profitable, unlike how conservations view conservation. Uh, If you read the stuff on conservation, you get the impression you either care about conservation or you care about profits. Whereas my paradigm is a paradigm where conservation is profitable. And I can give you concrete examples of it.
0: It's interesting. Recently, I myself have really taken an interest into... um property law and how perhaps we got to where we are today because of some of the implications around property law and you know to your point about i think therefore i am that us as a species
1: have taken agency over the earth as if we own it exactly exactly the the property law And in fact, in in my recent, very recent work that I'm doing right now, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it because I think that's the, I want to give hope to people that how we can lead better lives. And it's, it's all tenable. It's all within our reach. We just have to think outside the box a little bit and allow us to experiment because we have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Anyway, the property law comes in very important. Anybody who studied corporate finance, and I used to teach it, understands that any asset, in, in order for it to be any, any uh, how shall I say, endeavor that yields benefit to be called an asset, and from asset to capital, you need to bring it under property, property law, and, uh, or you need to codify it in the law. Mm-hmm. Once it's codified in the law, it, it gets endowed with four things right away: priority, universality convertibility, and there's one more that I'm forgetting right now. Four things. So, so notice where I started. I said, the science tells us phytoplankton captures carbon dioxide. Whales capture carbon dioxide. okay, Elephants capture carbon dioxide. Mangrove, seagrass, salt marshes, all of these, they have value to us. Now, how much is that value? You bring in the finance, and the finance tells you this is a dollar amount. But to, to, to take all that knowledge and make it, make it actionable, you need, you need to take those assets and convert them into capital. You need a policy. You need to codify it in the law. It can come under property, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, but that needs an action of the state. It's the state that gives you the Right. Because ultimately, you have claims on the state, right? If I, you and I enter into a contract, and that contract is well-defined and comes under either tax law, corporate law, or property law, then if you and I have a dispute, we'll go to court and one of us gets dollars. But dollars are claims on the state. So that means the state has an interest in whether the assets that you and I, or the contracts that you and I entered, can be, can be converted into capital. So therefore. If for for this knowledge about the value of nature to be to be actionable, meaning for us to create markets around it, we need to use the law. We need to go from the science; we have to ground ourselves in evidence base uh, science, and then you the valuation, and then you say, okay, now I need to take it to the markets to act on it. But there is where the law comes in. Um, and and that takes an act of the state. For example, for the whales, if I may be concrete, let me give you an example. Um, I was told that I don't want to reveal names. Uh, they said told me that in Palau, um, the the um, uh, the sharks are very valuable, and that Palau had valued the sharks because of the tourism, you know, shark tourism and all this stuff, at at almost two million dollars. Imagine one shark. Mm-hmm. But Palau had declared that its ocean is uh, MPA, Marine Protected Area, about 85 or 87% of it. They left about 12%, 30% open for tuna fishing. So, what's been happening is uh, fishing boats come in to f- fish for tuna, and they see 10 sharks and one tuna, and they throw the net, and they capture the 10 sharks, which they don't need. They call it collateral catch. And they capture the tuna that they're after. So they were complaining to me. That can, the, the question was, Ralph, can you help us? And I said, well, this is akin to me telling you I'm your best friend. But, but when two goons depend, descend on you, I, I look the other way. <laughs> That's what you're telling me. I said, how so? I said, well, you, are the sharks valuable? Yes. You value them at $2 million? Yes. So this ship that basically captures 10 sharks, have, do they pay $2 million per shark? No. I said, therefore, the the value of the shark is zero. got to put your money where your mouth is. They said, well, how would you do it? I said, well, nothing. The government declares the shark a national treasure. Says the shark, I will endow the shark with uh, with personhood, just like New Zealand did with its river, its famous river. It conferred personhood on the river. In fact, New Zealand declared all animals to be sentient beings. So they're way ahead of us. I said, you declare the shark, you confer personhood on the shark, or you just say the national asset, it's an asset of the state. If you were to harm the shark, the penalty is 2 million. We valued it at 2 million. Now what would happen is now the next boat that comes in looking for tuna is going to see the 10 sharks and the tuna is going to say, wait a minute. If we capture those 10 sharks and they discover that we did so, we're going to pay $2 million per head. That's a lot of money. They may not capture us. So there's some probability they may capture us. Still, it's a lot of money. It will change the behavior. Remember, we started this conversation about incentives.
0: Incentives, yes.
1: Exactly. It's all about incentives. What do you put in place in laws and contra- to change people's behavior? That's what's all about. I said, you, all you have to do is declare it a national asset or confer personhood on it. And I believe in Honduras, they declared the the uh, the bees. They conferred personhood on bees. See, so so once you do that, suddenly the asset has has rights, and you have responsibilities towards it, and the markets start to look at you differently. So I said, but the game doesn't stop here because once the government declares the assets, the uh, the shark says assets with two million. I said, guess who enters the market? They said, who? I said, the insurance companies. Because the insurance company is going to look at this, and say, wait a minute, here's an asset, has a value, it's enshrined in the law, I can insure it. So they'll go to the owner of the fishing fleet and say, I will insure you against you catching sharks by mistake. But what you got to do, and of course you pay a premium, but you got to install this device that keeps the sharks away or this device that allows you to identify the sharks when they're in the vicinity. So you avoid about capturing them. And so one of the gentlemen at lunch said to me, but that, that, that technology may not exist. I said, the moment you declared an asset, that you will find that that technology exists. That's innovation. Right. Because they're very smart people out there. And I know for a fact, because I'm working with the Chileans on the Blue Boat Initiative in Chile right now, and, and what they have now, the buoys, they have buoys that they are going to put in the, in the uh, bay of Corcovado, where that buoy in the water can tell you exactly what kind of whale is in the water and where its location. Can you imagine?
0: Did you, did you hear about the new population of blue whales that were discovered last, late last year?
1: Yes. Isn't that wonderful?
0: It's, it's amazing, right? <laughs> it is. It is.
1: It is. So, so, so we have the technology. But what you're doing is, you know, just in the case of the sharks, you start to create a market around protecting the sharks. Insurance companies come in, firms come in, private sector comes in, and suddenly the government starts to make money because you don't create markets out of penalties. You create markets out of good incentives to bring in. So now you have the government, the private sector, you have the, uh, the people, the local communities would benefit because they, they can get guaranteed income from looking, you know, being involved in this effort. And what you're creating is a market around vibrant economy. And by doing so, shark population grows, biodiversity with it is helped. You have a cleaner ocean, everybody thrives. That's what I call the win-win model. Jumping to to the elephants, that's what we're doing right now. We have an effort to to do an experiment, first of its kind, in Gabon, in the Luango National Forest. Uh, We are trying to take this model and apply it there. And there, the model is a bit different. It's, uh, It's based on selling the carbon services of the elephants. Can you imagine? So let's say, for example... Um, you, you, as you know, you know, just go back just a little bit, you have the Paris Accord. Paris Accord mm-hmm. says if you subscribe to the Paris Accord, we ne- we cannot reach the 1.52 degrees, which means, translates into, we need to go carbon neutral, carbon negative, carbon zero by, you know, we need to have the carbon emissions by tw- by 2030, and then we need commitments towards carbon zero on the part of the governments and then that translates into companies and, and firms and so forth and investors by 2050. Now imagine this, that means there's going to be a huge demand for carbon sequestration capture technology, right? I mean, how are you going to go carbon zero? You cannot stop doing what you're doing. Either you you have two options, either you find new technology that allows you to keep doing what you're doing without any carbon emission, good luck, or you're going to have to find a t- technology that will offset your carbon emission. And what I have discovered with my colleagues are such as the elephants, such as the whales, such as mangroves, seagrass, salt marshes, all this. These are what we call nature-based solutions that help you capture t- carbon with no side effects because it's not new technologies. This technology is circa millions of years in development. So we decided to apply this model in the Loango National Forest in uh, Gabon where they have 1,500 elephants. They have 1,500 elephants. And uh, the idea would be, why not go to co- companies like Microsoft, uh, Google? You know, We, we need a, a big company that will give hope to others. Like, hey, I'm doing it. Why aren't you doing it? Right? It doesn't matter. Some some company that, that that has made a commitment to offsetting its carbon footprint or to going carbon neutral and say, how about if you buy up the services? Remember, you're not buying the whale, the elephant or the whale here. You're buying the services. So the elephant belongs to Gabon, belongs to its forest. You don't touch it. You don't do anything to it. You're just buying its services, and its services accrue to you just from the elephant conducting its own business, <laughs> you know, eating, poo-pooing, having babies, living its life. That's how you get the 1.75 million or the 9,500 tons of carbon dioxide that it captures over its lifetime.
0: And so you've created a carbon sequestration market. Exactly.
1: That's exactly what we're doing. So we're working with Ian Redmond, the famous gorilla and elephant expert, uh, Waleed Sakaf, who's uh, who uh, has uh, insured blocks, and we have uh, colleagues, about fifty some colleagues, who have volunteered their time. They're from all over the world, from all over the disciplines, who have decided to join the effort to create the first ever experiment in Gabon, where what we will be doing is setting up the technology, because we need to ensure the investor that you see when you say the let's say for example just. Just as an example, you go to Microsoft and you say, how much do you emit in terms of carbon dioxide per year? And they say 100 units or 100 tons. Okay, that's the services of three elephants. All right, so we're going to sell you the services, not the elephant. The elephant belongs to the country, to its forest, to its nature. And, and so Microsoft would want to say, well, how do I ensure that the elephant is looking and doing well? So we need the technology, the monitoring technology that is not invasive. That can monitor without invading their habitat the wealth and health of the forest and of the elephants. In return, Microsoft gets to write down its carbon sequestration, its carbon emission. The money that they would pay would go to the local communities who would go from being potential poachers to potentially looking after those elephants and after the habitat and enjoying, in return, not only steady income and employment but also cleaner environment. Government would benefit from the expansion of the consumption base, from having these people employed, from the new businesses that would come in to benefit from the ancillary activities related to this. And the world benefits from a cleaner environment and a healthier forest. Spillovers would be other countries that have lost their elephant communities because elephants used to be 1 million. There's less than 100,000 now, about 90,000, and they're dying very quickly. Uh, other com- countries that have lost would look at Gabon and say, oh, my goodness, I used to have those elephants. Why not reintroduce them? You see? so um, So you end up protecting the stock of elephants that you have right now and allowing future generations of elephants to thrive. N- nature would thrive. Because remember, this is what I'm doing is I'm valuing a thriving nature. So the moment you capture it, you do anything to it, that value goes to zero. Because I remember in one seminar, somebody asked me, why well, aren't you worried about somebody grabbing the elephants and killing them? I said, would you go to your bank account and take out a million bucks and burn it in the parking lot? <laughs> why would you yeah. want to kill? Are you, right now, I said, the current model is about killing the elephants. Right. The, the model that I'm talking about is a model of life longing for itself. A model of thriving nature. Nature thrives; we thrive with it. Thereby, we end up creating this very nice dance, if you like, balance between our life and the natural world from which we came. And we we go back. We go back. I mean, the Indians knew this. The Native Indians knew that all along. They, they call it, you know, walking softly, walking this earth. walking softly on this earth. <laughs> Um, so we, we, we have been traipsing, destroying, walking around like crazy people, destroying everything inside. And it's time for us to go back. Anyway, so this is the model that we are putting for forward, saying, look what we can do. And by the way, countries can do this. Imagine, Raj, if countries were able to do this. Suppose we succeed, and uh, I have every hope that we will succeed in Gabon. What you're really telling countries, the, the corollaries that come out of this, is that countries are gonna look at their nature and say, wait a minute, what do I have here? <laughs> right? So many poor countries out there are gonna be looking at their nature, right? So many countries are border the ocean and they have and they also have some of them have forests. They don't know any better. So they've been cutting down the trees to get warm and fishing or allowing all kinds of the you know mining and all that stuff, not knowing that the regenerative nature is far more. Uh, uh, how shall I say? Brings far more wealth than an extractive view of nature. Right, much more valuable alive. Absolutely, because y- you look at the ocean. I mean, we did the value for Chile. We've we worked with the top scientists and whales in Chile at the Mary Foundation, and we valued the whales of Chile, the blue whale, because they have a very famous blue whale, which lives mostly in, in their waters. And the value of a single blue whale is about 4 million. And by the way, that's at the price of carbon of $22.40. You and I know that the price of carbon is going to skyrocket in the next few years as the demand for carbon sequestration is going to skyrocket, which means the price that you're looking at right now is is going to be diddly nothing. I project that the price of carbon will be in the hundreds in the, few, in the years to come. In the next year or so, once you start to establish a market, <clears throat> but the price is not enough, and the price is 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 not enough. I mean, my colleagues who believe in externalities think that the price will solve everything, and I completely disagree with them, because if you go and if you, you know, if you go and work on, you know, just saying, well, the solution is pricing of carbon you're missing the point that it's a missing market, not an externality. And if you go to a price of carbon of 100 and 200, first of all, at $2, people are balking. At Mm -hmm. 20 countries refuse, what are you going to tell India? What are you going to tell all these other countries, you know, are going to say, or, you know, the poor countries. Well, India is not a poor country. It has poor people, but it's not a poor country. But you have poor countries going to say, what, the price of carbon in your country is going to be $200 per tonne? which industry will, and it's a non-starter for them, you see. It's not a price. In fact, the whole exercise shows you the, the fallacy in using the price mechanism to, to, to deal with this issue. This issue needs a change in behavior, a paradigm shift, a new way of thinking, a new way of behaving, along with the proper pricing of carbon, yes, but it cannot be only the price, Anyway, back to the beauty of this is countries are going to find out that they thought they were poor. They're going to find out that they're far richer than they thought, because they may have oceans that are thriving with, with all kinds of you know, creatures and uh, cetaceans or non-cetaceans that are incredibly valuable from a market perspective, which they would be able to take to the markets with no harm. Because again, I'm repeating myself. The price, the value that you would get is only if your nature is thriving and well. And for some of these poor countries where you've got, um, I don't want to name names, you've got big companies or countries coming to them saying, let me mine your, your, uh, your jungle or so forth. At least those countries would now learn that their forests and their land is far more valuable. So either they extract a better deal or they say, you know what? whatever you're giving me is a one-time payment, whereas what I'm going to get from protecting my nature is a payment in perpetuity that not only brings me money, but brings me a better future for my people and for the planet. Now, how wonderful is that?
0: That really is a beautiful picture. You know. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned four years, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, you don't sleep much. You've garnered this name as this nature-loving economist now. What are some of the most valuable lessons you would say you've learned in the last four years about
1: yourself? Ah. <laughs> um, wow. Well, I haven't had time to think about that. Um, I've I've learned, you know, that... It's these are these cliches I'm sorry that are true, how we're all connected, that we're all connected, and that you know certain things my mother used to tell me they they've come back full circle now um, with a lot more weight. Um, we are all that we are all part of this one breath. That's how I feel. I feel that we are all part of this one breath. Earth is a living organism. Each one of us are playing one or two roles or maybe three roles, but we all have something to offer. Um, and my role, I think, I never I never thought... You know, when I was in in high school and I was doing extremely well in the sciences, I took a I took one of these uh, tests, you know, uh, placement tests. Remember, like, what are your personality? <laughs> and and I was so out of economics or anything like that. Uh, I took the test, and it said social worker. <laughs> and I <laughs> remember... like yeah, asking you what it was talking about. <laughs> exactly. I mean, 50 years later, 50 years later, that's what I'm doing. Or 40 years later, that's that's what I'm doing. It's, it's, it's incredible for me. That I remember taking the test. I took it twice because I couldn't understand why it didn't say engineer, physicist, <laughs> stuff like that. It just said social worker, and wow. uh, and it's wonderful, uh, you know, to be called, uh, you know, to care for, caring. So Earth is one breath, and it's very dynamic. You give and you take. You, keep, you cannot go too much in either direction. And I feel that my role now is to share this good news with everyone in a concrete way. I mean, I can, I can be far more concrete. I can do it in dollars and cents. I can do it in mathematics. I can do it in words. I can draw pictures if you like. But this story is the same. We came of this world. We belong to this world. We have to behave as if we belong in this world. You cannot live in a village and pretend that you are not part of it.
0: Well staying in the vein of sharing the news, my last question is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom
1: with the audience, what would it be? Um, I'm probably repeating myself, is to step back and, 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 and okay, would be, uh, tomorrow cannot be like today. Tomorrow we need a new way of thinking, we need a new way, we need a new paradigm. And that inv- involves a change in our behavior to go back to the natural world from which we came. Only then, only then, we'll be we able to live in a sustainable and prosperous way for all. That means all humans and all creatures big and small.
0: Ralph, I think that's beautiful and I'm gonna quote something you said earlier a vibrant nature is valuable for all of us. Yes, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. thank Thank you so much, Raj. Thank you
0: so much for your time today. And I'm going to put links to both of your papers and all the other things we spoke about in the show notes. And I look forward to having a conversation with you again, maybe later this year, to find out what else you're researching and studying. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the time.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes and you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our nexus pmg handle if there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the cleantech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.